Turn with me, if you will, again to Luke chapter 5. <coughs> Luke 5, we're going to finish the chapter today. <coughs> Verses 33 down to 39. You know, here at Wiser Lake Chapel, it seems sometimes as if the Lord's work moves forward in direct proportion to the food that's being served. You ever notice that? After every Sunday service, morning and evening, there's cookies and juice to make sure the Lord's work gets done. And um, at least once a month, there's a potluck dinner to keep us moving in the Lord's work. And even special events like Easter involve eating together. You know, the soup and bread supper on Monday, Thursday, and Easter Sunday, a, a big brunch between the services. Now, I'm not complaining or, or criticizing these practices. And indeed, I think it's a wonderful biblical practice. Uh, God's people sitting around a table sharing a meal together. It's, it's something of the very definition of Christian fellowship. I only mention this because this morning we come to a passage about fasting. The practice of intentionally abstaining from eating for the sake of piety. We don't seem to do that very what much, do we? Should we be doing that? What do we think about fasting? Well, let's turn our attention to this text and see what we can learn. Verse 33, Luke 5, 33. They, that is the Pharisees, that were criticizing Jesus. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, it, he will have torn the new garment. The patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new. For he says the old is better. Today I have two points to think about. There's a big one and there's a little one. The big one will take up most all of our time, and it includes all of this text except the last verse. The little one is talking about the last verse. The big point is this. Jesus has already begun the age to come. Jesus has already begun the age to come. You know, in all of life, it's important to, to see where we are in the big scheme of things. So if you go down here to the mall, or especially go to some shopping mall that you've never been in before, you'll find this big chart of all the stores, big diagram, and somewhere there'll be a big red star that says, you are here. In fact, if you're driving down the interstate and you stop at a uh, rest area, you'll probably find the same thing, a map of the whole area with uh, some, uh, that big red star again that says, you are here. It's important for us to know where we are in the big scheme of things. And so it, it is in the study of this passage. Jesus is asked about fasting, which he answers in a way that frankly raises a lot of questions. 
So before we can make any sense of it and understand what's happening, we need to stand back and look at the big picture and see where we are in the big scheme of things. Fortunately, Jesus told us something about that using three metaphors uh, in these few little verses that will help us to understand. So we're first going to talk about that big picture, and then we're going to come back to the matter of fasting. So we won't start right with fasting. And let me just tell you right up front that these metaphors that Jesus gives us to show us the big picture make very clear that we stand in a very glorious place. For Jesus has already begun the new age to come. Let me explain for a moment the ancient Jewish understanding of God's unfolding plan. In the Old Testament, God's people expected history to be divided into two sections. There was, there was the present age in which they lived, and then there was the age to come. There was, these moved kind of in linear movement from one into the other. They lived in the present age, waiting for the coming of the day of the Lord. That would be a day of judgment for the world, especially for their enemies. But that judgment would then be followed by the age to come, a new world, a new age. And, and, and that would be a time of international peace and justice under the reign of David's son, the anointed one, the Messiah. It would be a time of security and prosperity. It would be a time of spiritual renewal and intimate relation with God. Their expectation was very simple. We live in this present age, but we wait for the glorious age to come. But in our text, Jesus is suggesting that in him, this age to come has already begun. Now there have been some hints of this earlier. In all the events surrounding Jesus' birth, there were things that pointed to that glorious age. John the baptizer proclaimed that judgment is coming and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's a reference to that new glorious age to come. Jesus' ministry of healing and casting out demons and forgiving sins suggested he's the Messiah who would reign in the age to come. But here it's in the three metaphors that Jesus uses that uh, we see the, the, the indication that the, of the beginning of that new age to come in Jesus. So let's talk about these three metaphors. The wedding and the garments and the new wine. Those three things he talks about. First of all, Isaiah had spoken of uh, the age to come in terms of a wedding. For example, in Isaiah 54, we read, The Lord himself said, that he, I'm sorry, this is not a quote. The Lord himself said he would be the bridegroom and Israel would be his bride. And then in Isaiah 62, in, in spite of the desolation of the past, God said the nations would see Israel's glory, that she would be called by a new name, Hephzibah. Not a very catchy woman's name, but that was it, Hephzibah which means my delight is in her. And the land would be called by the name Beulah, which means married. So Jesus' use, use of this metaphor of, of a wedding feast seems to suggest that he has already begun the age to come. It's wedding feast time already. And secondly, the age to come had also been characterized by the promise of uh, new garments. 
We see this in Isaiah again. Isaiah 61 especially makes a point of this in regard to the Messiah's coming to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of the spirit of despair. Then a few more verses later, Isaiah mixes the metaphor of the garments and the wedding. We read there, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. So the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. Now Jesus picks up this metaphor of wedding clothes. And he denies that those wedding clothes can be just made over garments. He says, no one would tear a piece off of that new garment to patch up some old garment. That would ruin both the new and the old. This new age which Jesus has brought to the earth is radically, beautifully new. It's like a sparkling white wedding dress. As Leon Moore said, Jesus makes it clear that something new and decisive has happened. Christianity, while continuous with the Old Testament, is not just patched up Judaism. Jesus has already begun the new age to come. Well, the third metaphor is the new wine. This is one of the most vivid Old Testament pictures of the age to come. In Jeremiah 31, new wine flowing is part of the description of the day of the new covenant. Then in Joel 2, where we have the description of God's great restoration and the promise of the coming of the Spirit, it's again described in terms of God giving his people new wine. And then Joel 3 and Amos 9 both picture the abundance of the new age to come in these terms. The mountains will drip with new wine. Now we think of wine coming in bottles, that's how it is in our day. But the ancient custom was to put new wine in uh, goatskin bags that uh, would expand as the wine fermented. But those bags were not reusable. If you put new wine in one of those old goatskin bags that had all expanded with wine before, they would explode and it would ruin both the bag and the wine. So Jesus again makes the point that he has begun this age to come and you cannot put the new wine of the coming age in the wineskins of the old age of Judaism. That stretched out old wineskin cannot contain what God is doing in Jesus. Make no mistake, Jesus is claiming to have already begun the age to come. So what's new? It's easy to see that Jesus is talking about something radically new, but what exactly is he talking about? What's actually different about the new age, which has now begun in Jesus. Well, actually, there are many, many things that are new. 
Remember in John 4 when Jesus talked to the Samaritan woman at the well? He told her that the whole structure of worship would change when Messiah came. No longer would people worship either in Jerusalem or in Mount Gerizim, the big division between the Jews and the Samaritans. Jesus says when Messiah comes, people will worship in the spirit and in truth. Neither one of those places, but in the spirit and in truth. The book of Hebrews picks up that same kind of thinking and declares that in Jesus, everything has changed. He is a new and better revelation of God, the exact image of God's person. He's a new and better leader than Moses was, for he's the son, not the servant. He brings a new and better Sabbath rest to God's people. He is a new and better high priest who has no sins of his own to atone for. He, he, he administers a new and better covenant. He offers a new and better sacrifice, his own atonement, his own offering of himself as an atonement for sins. He ministers in a new and better temple, not, not, not something on earth that's made after a pattern of something else, but the real thing, the very presence of God in heaven. Indeed, on his death, by his death on the cross, he has given us new and better access to God. We can come right into the presence of God in prayer. So when we gather as God's people, we don't gather like Israel did around Mount Sinai waiting for the law to be given. We gather before a heavenly Zion, the new Jerusalem, where we meet Jesus. Lots has changed. The books of Galatians and Romans continue to tell us all the benefits of the age to come, which we've inherited. We now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. We've received by grace. Uh, we received grace apart from the law, the, the works of the law. We're adopted as sons into his household, given the right to call God Abba or Papa. We've been given the Spirit of God who works within us. And the list goes on and on and on. Make no mistake, Jesus has already begun God's glorious age to come. So back to the question of fasting then, where this passage begins. I guess fasting is a thing of the past then, is it not? I mean, if we already enjoy the age to come, then this is a time of feasting, not fasting. Well, yes and no. It's actually a bit more complicated than that. For while the new age has begun, the old age has not yet ended. The curse of sin has not been removed from the creation. Paul says the whole creation is groans as it waits. It's like it's in labor pains. Sin is still present. Evils are still powerful in the world. Judgment has not taken place. There's still suffering in the world. We do not yet have every tear wiped from our eyes, as God promised. Our bodies are still getting old and still getting weak, and they will die. The old age isn't over yet. You see, in reality, there's an overlap between this present age, this old age, and the age to come that's begun and will go on for eternity. That's why this period in between Christ's first and second coming is called the last days. It's the last days of the old order of things. At the same time that it's the beginning days of the new order of things. We live suspended in this overlap, if you will. Suspended in what's been called the already and the not yet time. We already live in the reality of the new age that Jesus has brought. 
but we do not yet have it all. We're not yet done with this present evil age. And that's how we're to understand Jesus' teaching about fasting. The days of Jewish fasting are over. The Jews fasted on the Day of Atonement. Then there were at least four other major fasts each year. And then by Jesus' time, the Pharisees were fasting twice a week, every Monday, every Thursday. As Tom Wright points out, fasting in Judaism was a sign of waiting, of bewailing the present time when God's kingdom still had not arrived. It was a way of looking back to the disasters that had befallen Israel and humbling oneself in repentance to pray for God's mercy. But what if God's mercy was now alive and active, healing, celebrating, creating a new world and inviting you to enjoy it? Once again, the party theme. This is like a wedding feast. And the last thing you do at a wedding feast is abstain from food and drink. Jesus has come. It's a time for feasting, not fasting. And yet, after Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven, though there are many accounts of the church feasting in joy, suddenly there are also accounts of the church humbly fasting again. And sure enough, that tension is found right here in Jesus' answer in verse 34 and 35. He says, when I, the bridegroom, am here, fasting is inappropriate. But when I'm gone, then my people will fast. So the question for us is this, is Jesus present or is he gone? Is he absent? What he said, I'm going away. And where I go, you can't come. He must be gone. Except that his last words before he ascended to heaven is, Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. And he gave us his spirit, so he's present. You see, there's a sense which both are true. We live in the day of the already and the not yet. We live in the day of knowing Jesus' presence and waiting for him to come. And folks, that's exactly the tension we find in the New Testament concerning fasting. On the one hand, it's always appropriate to fast, to humble ourselves in gratitude to God for his favor, to seek to know him, to know his will in some particular situation. Indeed, to practice fasting, um, not only refraining from food, but to practice fasting of the soul, self-denial, mortification of our flesh. But we fast not to gain merit in God's sight, But as we respond to his grace and wait for the full expression of his kingdom. So in the early church, they fasted. In Antioch, they fasted before they sent Paul and Barnabas out on a missionary journey. And Paul and Barnabas fasted before they appointed elders of the churches. It's always appropriate to fast, even as Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount about fasting. But even fasting is always in the context of the call to celebrate, to, to feast in joy. For we who are, in Christ, who are in Christ are a new creation. We are people who were dead and we're now raised from the dead to new life. We live in a day of radical grace. We're forgiven, adopted into God's household, kept by his spirit. It's only a little while before we see him face to face. Jesus has already begun his, God's glorious age to come. 
though we do not yet see it in all its fullness. Well, that's the main point of the passage. But like I said, there's a second little point. And that's simply this. Don't miss the feast. Don't miss the feast. This section on fasting and on the new wine and the new garment and not putting wine into old wine skins and not sewing a new patch on an old garment, that whole thing. It's also included in the Gospel of Matthew. It's included in the Gospel of Mark, although there's some little differences. But there's one phrase in this account that's peculiar to, to Luke. And that's the last phrase, verse 39, where Jesus adds, And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new. For he says, the old is better. What on earth does this mean? Is this some joke Jesus is telling here? If the new wine is a metaphor for God's kingdom, for the age to come, for the reign of Messiah, for the new covenant blessing, for the day of the wedding feast and exceeding great joy, how could anyone prefer the old wine? (laughs) Fred Craddock suggests an answer. He says it may be a recognition that many who heard Jesus found it very difficult to abandon the ways of Judaism. Respected, traditional, confirmed with scripture. And to take up the new, which was still finding its way, its voice, its shape, its own identity. Luke may be looking ahead to Acts, in which he records this very struggle within the church. Many sincere believers in Jesus insisted on keeping in place all the practices of the law but with Jesus added on as a Messiah. Actually, the context of this kind of points to that direction, doesn't it? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were objecting to Jesus feasting with sinners. Though that lavish grace shown to sinners was characteristic of the promises of the age to come. But they wanted no part of that. They wanted no part of that kind of Jesus. Instead, they held fast to the comfortable, safe, respectable traditions of the law, saying, in effect, no, the old is better. We like the old more. Can you imagine this? Christ Jesus came fulfilling all the prophets, uh, all the prophecies of, of the prophets. Uh, This is the day of the abundance of new wine, as he demonstrated in the wedding feast in Cana, which he began his ministry. This is the day of the wedding feast, the wedding clothes, being married to the Lord. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law preferred the old ways better. They wanted no part of the feast if that was to include sinners and tax collectors. Reminds me of the parable that Jesus told in Matthew 22. The king planned a wedding feast for his son. He graciously sent out an invitation to anyone who was anyone in the kingdom. I prepared a wedding banquet. Everything is ready. Come to the feast. But they didn't come. They had business to attend to. They had other things they'd rather do. 
And so the king said to his servants, you go out in the streets and you find anybody you can find. All the nobodies of town. Invite them in. Come to the feast. He lavished his grace on the nobodies. Because some refused to come. Folks, people are still refusing. Even the most religious people are refusing. Maybe you are refusing. We have our comfortable ways. We like our traditions. Talk about our religious traditions. We only associate with certain people. We're not about to sit at a table with foreigners. And yet Jesus keeps pushing us out of our comfort zone. He's way too radical. He upsets, upsets our sense of security. So it's easy to just say, no, nah, my old ways are better. I like my old clothes. I like my old wine. I'm content with the way things have been. But people think about this. In Jesus, God's eternal kingdom has begun. Yes, he's inviting undeserving sinners to the wedding feast, but that gives us hope too. Yes, he's clothing the guests with garments of righteousness and serving up living water and bread of life, but we're hungry and thirsty too. So how could you dare to say, I've got other things to do. I like my old traditions better. They're familiar to me. I'll pass. Oh, don't miss the feast. Let me just close with uh, Alan Culpepper's very insightful comment on this. He says, as Christians in a privileged society... We have cultivated such a taste for the old wine. Have we, it's a question, have we cultivated such a taste for the old wine that we despise the new? Have we had the good stuff, houses and cars and freedoms, for so long that we've lost sight of the power of Jesus' invitation? To call a tax collector to follow him? To touch a leper? Or his table fellowship with outcasts? Those things are a celebration of a new vintage. The new wine arrived bearing this date. The acceptable year of the Lord. And nothing with our relationship in our relationship with others, especially with the wretched, despised, and overlooked among us, nothing can ever be the same again. This morning I call you to come to Jesus. He has already begun the age to come. Don't be among those who refuse to come. Don't miss the feast. Amen.